Hey everybody, this is your host, Matt Castellini, and welcome to Chicago Capital. We have a great episode lined up today, but before that, a word from our sponsors, World Business Chicago. As the city of Chicago's economic development organization, World Business Chicago drives inclusive growth and opportunity for our local tech, innovation, and startup ecosystem. They recently announced the 2022 Chicago Venture Summit Future of Food, their new flagship conference to highlight why Chicago leads as a global capital for food innovation. Follow World Business Chicago on LinkedIn and Twitter for event details and other related news about our city's economic progress. Tessa, thank you so much for hopping on Chicago Capital. It's great to have somebody who's raised their own venture fund, you know, in the past year on the show and really excited to kind of dig into, you know, that process and and what you're all working on over at Capitalize. But I think to start, it'd be great to kind of hear your background and kind of your path to venture capital. Yeah, sounds good. So I'm originally from Minneapolis, Minnesota, currently living in Chicago. I've been in Chicago for about five years now, but, you know, born and raised in the Midwest. I did get out of the Midwest for college, so I went to Stanford undergrad and then made my way across the country, a small pit stop in Chicago right after graduation, and then out to New York for business school. I went to Columbia Business School for my MBA. And after business school, I ended up starting my own company, so dove into entrepreneurship and started a fintech company in the payment space, ran that company for about three years, and that took me to Latin America. We were basically sending money transfers throughout Latin America for the underbanked to migrant population competing with companies like Western Union, and ran that company for about three years, started as a solo founder, brought on a couple of co-founders throughout the years, and then you know lived in Latin America doing accelerators for that time. And then after kind of transitioning away from that company, I ended up coming back to the States and getting connected with the team at TechNexus. And so spent about four years at the TechNexus on basically investing in enterprise-related technology on behalf of corporates at TechNexus. And then slowly over those four years, kind of got the itch to pursue my own thesis. And so I decided to start Capitalize about a year ago. Yeah, and I think... You know, you didn't mention this, but you did have a, a very steady and, you know, a great rise at TechNexus. It seems like you were getting promoted almost every other year. And I think a lot of listeners of the show are starting off in their careers in venture or, you know, looking to get into venture. And so I would just love to hear any kind of takeaways you had as somebody who successfully kind of, you know, moved up within a venture firm. would love to hear some of those. Yeah. So I think my time at TechNexus, like coming into it, I knew nothing about VC. I had been a founder, I tried to raise venture capital funds, raise some angel capital, but never like successfully like raised a ton of VC funding. And so when I came in, I was really trying to just like understand the industry from the other side of the table. And so, you know, got the opportunity to join TechNexus because I had this like domain expertise kind of within the crypto and blockchain space, because that's what my previous company was really like working within and utilizing. And so joining TechNexus was kind of an opportunity that I received because of that domain expertise. And so TechNexus has corporate LPs and those corporate LPs back in 2016, 2017 were like, what is this blockchain thing and how is it going to disrupt our industries? How is it going to change our supply chains? 
And nobody at the TechNexus team had done as much work in, in crypto and blockchain as I did. So they were really just kind of like, can you explain this to us and our LPs? Because they're all asking questions and potentially like we might want to do some deals in this space. And so that's really how I got my start at TechNexus. And so kind of coming in with like that angle. And then also, I mean, they love the fact that I'd been a founder before that I kind of had this understanding of the early stage, you know, founder space and that founder experience. And so they were like, oh, you can bring that perspective to the deals we're doing. Sounds great. So join the team at TechNexus. And I think like over the time that I was there, I just really continued that like same energy of wanting to just really learn. And so anytime that there was like something to be done within the firm, I was volunteering for those things just to get as much exposure as I could kind of across all areas of the firm. So things like tracking the portfolio companies and how much capital they've raised and like the entire spreadsheet around markups and just like the details around each of the funding rounds that we participated in, like that was my job. And so I got really involved in like process around starting a VC fund. And then there was also an opportunity to, you know, assist with the the strategic planning around an opportunity fund. And this was kind of towards the end of my time there, but that was an opportunity to basically like get a crash course in fund formation. And so they were looking to start an opportunity fund and they wanted somebody to really just put together like the groundwork for that plan. And so I was putting together the deck. I was putting together the messaging. I was, you know, in, in conjunction with the founders, of course, but like really talking to lawyers and figuring out, you know, what kind of structure we wanted to use. And so I kind of got a lot of the tools that I needed to start my own fund from those types of experiences around just trying to learn around process. And, you know, so you spent time as a you know a founder of a you know company and then you founded your own venture firm. So I'd, I'd love mm-hmm. to hear any, any comparisons you were able to make, anything that was vastly different in the experience. You know, there's not many that we've been able to talk to who have been able to do both. So I think we'd love to hear kind of yeah. your perspective on the process of doing you know both of those things. Yeah, I, I get this question sometimes. And in my everyone's like, what's harder raising for a company or raising for a fund? And my perspective is I think it's definitely harder to raise as a founder of like single company versus uh, a founder of a VC fund. And it might just be my um, experience here. But for me, I think raising for a VC fund is it's basically like pitching to somebody, hey, do you want to make money? (laughs) And I think everybody like VC has been been proven really like if you're good at at investing vc has been proven to make your investors a lot of money and so you're basically just coming to them with this pitch and trying to get them on board with the fact that you know what you're doing you know how to invest and then the pitch is really like do you want to make money okay great versus when you're a founder of a company a lot of times like people want to invest in things that they care about and things that they're passionate about and so it's kind of like finding more of a niche investor when you're raising for a specific thing. Like you're going to do a specific thing here and that's all you're going to do versus a VC fund where we're investing in you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of that. We're just really trying to get you a really great return. And so, but I also think like my experience here is a little different because I was a lot younger when I was a founder. I didn't have as much career experience. I didn't have as, as great of a network that I do today. And so I think that all kind of is also, you know, things that we should take into account here. But At the end of the day, I definitely think that 
raising for one specific thing is a little bit harder, in my opinion, than raising for something that's a bit more broad. Yeah, it's such an interesting point, too. I actually never thought about it like that, because I guess when you're a founder, your part of your conversation is like proving out the problem solution statement, you know, like, first, I have to prove there's a problem here, and there's a big enough opportunity here. And that's just the first part of the conversation, then obviously, you have to get into your solution, why it works, why you're best suited to, to tackle it. And VC, it's like, yeah, it's a proven asset class, you know, it's uh, some of the biggest institutional investors in the world are LPs, and they make investments in it every day. So yeah, that's a that's a really good point. You're kind of starting so much further behind the eight ball, it feels like when you're starting a company versus a fund. Yeah, exactly. And so I'd love to dig a bit into, you know, the real origin moment behind Capitalize. And you mentioned, you know, you spent time in TechNexus and over the years, you know, you realized branching out is something you wanted to do. But when did you really know, okay, this is a leap I want to take and this is a risk I want to take at this stage in my career? If you know me, you know that I'm a risk taker. <laughs> I'm not risk averse at all. And so when I started La Plataforma, my previous company, I was just out of business school and I was like, hey, no time better than the present to be a broke entrepreneur. Like, let's do this. <laughs> and so like, I'm not very inhibited by like this idea of risk. And I also really love kind of the hustle of going after something that I personally am really passionate about. And I think, you know, I had that with my previous company. I was like living all over Latin America. I was really chasing like this passion and this lifestyle that I, I wanted to live. And, you know, after I kind of, you know, took a step back from that, I joined TechNexus and that was like a really needed break for me. I needed to just kind of, you know, get a consistent paycheck, like build up my savings. I needed, you know, get an apartment, pay rent, buy groceries. Like those were all like, things that I didn't have before, like this ability to just like go spend 20 bucks on a bottle of wine versus like get like three $50 bottles. <laughs> and so like, I just needed a break for a while. And I, and that's kind of, you know, what TechNexus was for me in my life and just an opportunity to really kind of like change course and course correct. And so after being at TechNexus for about three years, COVID hit and we're all in our houses and nobody can go anywhere. We're in lockdown. And, you know, that's, that was in March. And by the summer, this is summer of 2020, like George Floyd had just been murdered. Everyone's protesting. Like life was crazy. And I'm sitting on my couch, like zooming into work every day. And I just realized that like, there's like a, a lot of things changing in our world right now. And like, I'm stuck here. I can't do anything about it. And <laughs> like stuck in my house by myself. And I just realized like how much I missed the hustle. And I missed like really pursuing something that I'm really passionate about. And I was just like, I can't wait until we get out of our houses and we can like go on coffee chats. Like I just want to like hustle. I want to struggle. <laughs> and so that was like a whole conversation I had with people like in my family and close to me during that time. And they were looking at me like, are you insane? Like who wants to do stuff like that? And so I, I think it's just like a part of who I am. But at the end of the day, like I also started thinking a lot about, you know, wanting to invest into things that I personally cared about and founders that I really wanted to back and thought, you know, I could support and help succeed. And so I started putting together this concept for Capitalized VC and it, at the same time, you know, we saw a lot of small businesses closing across the country. And I personally, I live in a Mexican neighborhood in Chicago. And 
saw a lot of, you know, Latino founders closing up shop. And so there was like a point where I had this kind of epiphany moment where I was like, okay, you know, I'm looking to bring in diverse LPs into a VC fund. I'm also looking to invest in diverse founders. Like maybe there's a a play here where I can kill two birds with one stone. I can kind of get both of those, you know, groups of people to the table in the same fund by increasing liquidity of the fund and creating an opportunity for lowering the barrier to entry for LPs, as well as getting founders the capital that they need to grow. And so that was really the epiphany moment for Capitalize BC. And that's really what I think you're speaking to, you know, your marketing materials, you know, something you talk about is shifting the venture capital paradigm. Is that really the, you know, is that kind of what that alludes to? Yeah, it alludes to our uh, unique investment thesis and structure at Capitalize VC and kind of how we're doing things a bit differently and how we deploy capital. Yeah. And so I think, I think great time to kind of dive in a bit more, I think, into Capitalize VC. And I guess we could start with, you know, sector focus and, and where you guys have decided to, you know, first set your, set your sights on in terms of, you know, a sector focus. Yep. So similar to how I was investing at TechNexus, we are investing in enterprise tech. A little bit different to how I was investing at TechNexus is that we really love to see enterprise tech that's really focused on the small and medium enterprise. And so a lot of what we look at is fintech, advertising tech, e-commerce tech. So that's kind of like one group of types of, in, of companies that we look for, specifically really looking to try to figure out like how can we redistribute the flow of capital from like large enterprise down to small business. And so we're investing in kind of those areas that I just mentioned because for small businesses, they need to process payments. They need to access their customers through advertising and marketing tech. They need to increase their sales through things like e-commerce tech. And so we see an opportunity to invest in like these platforms and tools that allow businesses to scale. And so that's I guess our first and foremost, like focus on our tech investing side. But then we also have seen this huge shift in the future of work. And when I say the future of work, I mean the future of how people want to work. And so here we're not necessarily investing in like HR technology for large enterprises to figure out how to like recruit diverse talent. We're more interested in this movement away from large enterprise and into, you know, how do I monetize my own passions and my own skills and my own talents? in order to create additional revenue streams for myself and to increase my income in that way. And, and also like, are there opportunities for fractional work where I can do multiple things at one time and kind of side hustle my way to creating a whole career for myself that I have the ability to own and I have control over and I don't have to worry about, you know, getting laid off in three months because I'm making my own money and I'm doing it with by myself. And so, and I think that really speaks to like, again, who I am as a person, I've been a side hustler since I can remember. And so I feel like I'm coming at this with a very like personal mission as well, but like want to see particularly diverse communities being able to embrace who they are and really like monetize themselves. And so we invest in passion economy, creator economy, and then gig economy platforms. And so those two kind of areas that I just described comprise our technology investing. But then we also do have a small portion of our fund where we're investing into CPG brands directly. And so these really are kind of the small businesses of our generation who are building products and selling those through e-commerce to their peers and to the world. 
And so would these be brands that could be eligible for, you know, acquisition by a company like Thrasio or Heyday, kind of the ones that have been, you know, stood up on Amazon marketplaces or more so, you know, ones that are on, you know, Shopify and have interest in becoming, you know, full scale CPG companies. Just curious about and that's a trend, I think, too, you know, those heydays and those thrasios over the past two years that I definitely think probably you've all noticed and you're all very keenly aware of. So just curious about how you're viewing that space today. Yeah, I would say it's more of the latter. I would say it's people who are looking to scale their companies to become like the next Shea Moisters of the world, the next Oatleys of the world, the next Allbirds of the world. And so really looking for companies that ultimately can be acquired or go public down the road. I mean, it's a it's a really kind of dual mandate you all have because on the one hand, I think there's the there is the kind of traditional you know software investing B two B SaaS, but you're also combining it with some of this CPG exposure. How did that sort of take place? I mean, was it stuff you always worked at at TechNexus, so you just had kind of that you know subject matter familiarity, or how did you you know come at that decision to sort of pair these two you know kind of different sectors? Yeah, I think it starts with the LP. So I was. I knew, you know, going into Capitalize that I wanted to bring in a different kind of LP. I wanted to bring in somebody who is, you know, diverse, who might not have ever invested in VC before. Maybe they've done some angel investing, maybe never invested in a fund before, but really want, I'm actually looking to raise 50% of the fund from Black and Latinx. And so as I was having those conversations, I was having the same conversation over and over again. It was Yes, you're an accredited investor. Yes, you find this interesting. Yes, you have, you know, 50K to 100K to commit to this fund. But the next question was, well, when do I get my money back? And for venture, you know, you, especially a pre-seed stage fund like mine, you're not seeing returns come back to you very quickly because you need those companies to grow and exit. And so telling them truthfully, like, you know, typically VC doesn't return any capital for five to 10 years. That was like a lot of times where the conversation ended. And so, you know, it just wasn't for them. And so I realized very quickly that if I could increase liquidity of the fund, I could then lower this barrier to entry to getting these LPs in the door. And so that's where I turned to revenue-based financing. And I said, okay, well, if I can invest a portion of this fund through revenue-based financing, we can then increase liquidity of the fund and pay out those early returns to our investors. And so then the question was, okay, well, what kind of company wants to take revenue-based financing? And like, yeah, I've seen like the lighter capitals of the world who are doing something similar to revenue-based financing for tech companies, but I just didn't see the majority of tech companies really wanting to raise that kind of money. And so I then, this again was during 2020, I then looked around me and I was like, oh, all these small businesses are closing. Maybe small businesses want revenue-based financing. So I started talking to some small business owners. They were interested in it because they have a very difficult time fundraising. They really only get like grants and like, you know, some maybe private capital, um, but like grow using their own revenue. But at the end of the day, for me and like my investors, it just wasn't high growth enough. We needed something that could be high growth because revenue-based financing is growth-oriented capital. Like we're aligning ourselves with the founders that we're going to take a percentage of the revenue on a monthly basis. And so we want to see companies that are going to scale revenue quickly. And so I kind of arrived in the middle, like somewhere in the middle of tech and, you know, brick and mortar small business at CPG because 
CPG is a highly scalable business. Like there are some VC funds that only invest in CPG. And so like there is the opportunity for exit, there's the opportunity for high growth. And then they also are developing physical products. And so they are, they need to finance inventory. They need to buy their, like pay their suppliers in bulk in order to get the best pricing. And so we saw an opportunity to come in with CPG companies and say, here, here's some capital. It's cheaper than equity, but it's coming, we're coming in at a stage before any bank would look at you. Like you're doing 100K in revenue, maybe 250K in revenue for the last 12 months. And like no bank is going to give you a loan. And so we found this opportunity to fill this like space in the market with revenue-based financing for CPG companies. And it made so much sense for founders. They can keep their equity. They can keep their ownership at this stage. We get our liquidity out of it and it really works for both of us. And so that was how we arrived at these two different types of investment, you know, types of companies that we're investing in through Capital ICC. And so at stage-wise, you mentioned revenue kind of benchmarks or, or where they may be in their revenue life cycle. But at a stage component, are these seed, Series A companies? Does it not really matter because it's more about the, obviously, it's more about the revenue side of things. So where do these companies kind of fall in their, in their life cycle usually when you're taking a look, Capitalize is taking a look at them? Yeah. So we'll start on our tech side. We're investing pre-seed on tech. So we're investing in companies that have, you know, at least an MVP. We don't need to see revenue, but we need to see like customer traction. That can be through a tweet. It can be through other forms of traction that we can measure, but we want to see, you know, interactions with customers and that you know who you're selling to. And so, yeah, like And then, of course, we want to see great founders and we want to see those founders having expertise in the area that they're pursuing. And so then on the CPG side, we really define it by stage because I think for CPG, especially when you're investing in diverse founders, many of the companies we are talking to right now are doing over a million dollars in revenue. They've never raised any VC funds. They have bootstrapped themselves to date. And so like for founders who aren't who haven't historically been able to raise capital and especially for CPG founders who have an even harder time trying to raise capital because they're not, you know, developing proprietary technology, they oftentimes just don't really fall into these like series A, series B, series C kind of buckets. And so for for us, we look for companies that are doing at least 100k over the last 12 months in revenue. And at that point, they are, you know, qualified to talk to us about an investment opportunity. But for the most part, the companies that we're looking at are doing at least 250 all the way up to over a million dollars in revenue. And can you talk about maybe some of the first couple of investments um, you've all made and, and sort of what was the, you know, the thesis behind those investments? Yeah. So our first investment was in a Latina founder. She's based in New York. And she's originally from Ecuador. And so the company is called AirPals. And AirPals, so the founder, she spent a lot of time in the fashion industry. So she, in her you know previous life, was doing a lot of like production management for the fashion industry. So she was like managing the photo shoots and making sure all the clothes were there and making sure all the models were there and making sure like the photographer is like basically like human logistics <laughs> and making sure all the supplies were there. And so she realized while working in this industry that same day deliveries are just like the worst experience in the world. And so you have to, you had to utilize 
like an old school courier service or like an bike messenger services in order to send something from like Harlem to downtown Manhattan for a photo shoot. And so she decided to start AirPals, which is developing basically like the next generation of a courier service. But it's allowing you similar to how you would order an Uber. You can say, you know, type in your location, so your address, say where you need to send something to, what time you need it to be picked up, what time you need it to be dropped off, and they will text you throughout the process. So you have a lot more visibility into where your stuff is. Oftentimes, this stuff is valuable because this is an enterprise solution. It's not like a B2C solution. It's for enterprises. And so it creates, you know, this ability to have transparency in where your stuff is, but also understand like pricing up front and know how it's going to impact your your project or your team's budget. And so she saw this as a huge opportunity to kind of disrupt the space. Right now, she's only operating in New York, but she's anticipating expanding across the country and hopefully to Chicago soon. But we love Yoshe and she is on it. She's like super on top of everything. And so I actually knew her for a year before we actually invested. And I met her through, I think, one of these like conference events. We chatted. I had no money to invest at the time, but I was like, can we keep talking? (laughs) We keep having conversations. And so we just kept in touch. And then after we did our first close, she was working on her pre-seed round. And so we ended up investing and I was excited to be her first female investor. And also she raised an oversubscribed um, round. And so I was super excited to be a part of that company. So that was our first investment in February. And then we also made another investment in February into a coffee company based here in Chicago, a black founder of Creepy Coffee. They do have two brick and mortars in Chicago on the west side in Oak Park, but they also wholesale to a lot of the restaurants and coffee shops across Chicago and the Midwest. And so we saw an opportunity to invest in them and really help them scale out the wholesale and also budding direct-to-consumer arm of their company. We wanted to back them and be a part of that like growth opportunity that we saw within wholesale and direct-to-consumer. And I'm so curious about your process at Capitalize. So can you talk us through, you know, you find a company, you think it's great. What does your kind of investment committee process look like? It's always fascinating to me how new funds go about setting that up. And I think your background at TechNexus and the fact that you effectively were working on, you know, initiatives like this must have really helped you in the early days. So we'd just love to hear about, you know, you find a company, how do you kind of get it through the finish line at your fund? Yeah. So we so we have a great pipeline of companies. We have all companies fill out the form, you know, <laughs> the infamous form. But we we do read every submission through the form and then we'll reach out to have initial conversations with the companies that we're interested in. And at that point, it's typically me on the first call. So you're not like getting somebody who's like an analyst. You're talking to the decision maker on the first call. And so typically on that call, I'm really just looking to kind of check off the boxes of does this fit our investment thesis? Do I think the team is credible? Um, also asking about like previous capital raised and what the current round is looking like from like dollar amount perspective, as well as valuation, because we don't invest in any companies above a $10 million post money cap. So really looking to come in extremely early into these companies. And I think, you know, from 
well, I'll then loop in my two associates that I have capitalized. And so then we'll continue having additional conversations with the, with the company. Usually it's like maybe three or four total conversations where we're really trying to get to a point where like we want to access the data room and dig deeper into, you know, our diligence into the competitive landscape, market size, team, et cetera. And then, you know, once we get through our diligence, then we'll write up a deal memo. And so this is a 10 to 20 page document that goes into all different aspects of the business. And we write that up for our investment committee. On on the investment committee, I actually have eight people total. So four dedicated to the tech investing and four dedicated to the CPG investing. And I will bring that deal memo to the investment committee members individually. And so we will talk through, you know, why I like the deal, different, you know, details about the deal that will help them understand it. And they'll have pre-read the deal before the call. And I'm talking to each of these investment committee members independently. Um, and individually. And so really getting deep into how they feel about the deal and hearing, you know, any of their concerns about the deal. And so they'll tell me straight up, like whether they like it, whether they don't like it and exactly why they do or don't like it. And then after having four conversations on every deal, then ultimately the decision is mine, whether I want to invest or not. But if all of my investment committee members were like, this deal is not good, then I would definitely take that into consideration. (laughs) Are the investment committee members typically uh, LPs? Is there you know cross population there, or is it just people that obviously you have great connections? So I'm sure, and a lot of VCs like love just the intellectual you know challenge of getting to conviction on a deal you know with a memo. So I'm just curious about how you found the IC members in the first place. I found the IC members through my network and people that I had been close to over the years, but also felt that they could bring kind of an interesting and strategic perspective to the committee. So not all of them are LPs, but and not none of them started as LPs. So I asked them, they joined. And then just through working together, some of them have now invested in the fund as LPs. But so I have, you know, Tony Wilkins, he's an angel investor here in Chicago, very well known, built, you know, his reputation and his wealth off of angel investing. I also have Wayne Moore, who Let's go. is a partner is a partner here in Chicago at Basecamp Fund, which is a part of Alumni Ventures. And he and I, we actually both went to Stanford undergrad. And so we've known each other. And then also he's just been a great mentor here in Chicago, you know, since my tech nexus days. And then I also have Dare and he is a friend from Stanford as well. He was a fellow high jumper with me back in my college days. And he is, you know, he was a computer science nerd back then. He then went into developing for Google for like 10 years and then has worked at a few different Silicon Valley based startups in software development. And so he brings like a tech background to the investment committee. And and then lastly, I have Brett Bivens, who he's actually the reason why I'm in venture capital today. He was the person at TechNexus who really built out kind of like the venturing side of the business and ran the venturing team there when I joined. And so he actually hired me <laughs> at TechNexus. And then we worked together for four years. We have now both since left TechNexus, but we've still remained really close. And he is one of like the smartest, uh, most curious people. And so 
knowing how great of an investor he is and knowing how well we work together, I wanted to bring him in as well. So that's the tech side. And then on the CPG side, we have Rowan who has invested in a lot of small businesses over his time. He's based here in Chicago as well. And he is now at Allies for Community Business, which used to be called Axion. So he's done a lot of kind of more risky investing and like kind of small business grants to community-based organizations um, and small businesses. And then I also have Aaron Sims, who is a longtime friend, but he comes from a commercial lending background. And so he brings a very like structured kind of conservative approach to small business investing and lending. And so I wanted him on the team. And then Celine Diaz, she spent her career at Pritzker Group and PE. And so she brings this like private equity lens of like, okay, well, how can we like create, you know, bring in a great team and how can we change operations around so that we can really, you know, scale these businesses. And then lastly, my friend Amani, he's been a longtime advisor or not advisor, but like mentor of mine back since my Columbia Business School days. So he went to CBS as well and really helped me in kind of making the decision to go there to begin with. Um, and so he spent most of his career in banking, um, more like investment banking, but then recently left over the past few years to start his own beverage company. And so he's actually a CPG founder himself and he brings that founder lens to the table. Jeez, as a rock star, <laughs> I see you got there. I will say it. No, shout out to Wayne Moore. He uh, sits two offices down from me at LMI Ventures. He helped me with some of these questions. So I was going to have to give uh, credit where credit is due at some point in the show. So very happy we got to that. But I mean, what, yes. an, awesome. what an incredibly impressive roster you've assembled. And it seems like there's so many kind of, uh, you know, synergies in terms of their sector focuses, their backgrounds, and, and what you're actively pursuing at the pre-seed stage. And speaking of the pre-seed stage, you know, it sounds like you've just got, you know, kind of a good amount of experience investing there and obviously have kept your, you know, kept kept aware of what's been going on there in the past few years. I'm, I'm curious about if you've noticed any kind of major changes at the pre-seed stage in the past year or so. And I know, you know, the past couple of months may not have affected the pre-seed stage as much as it's affecting later stage and obviously the public markets, but just curious if any main takeaways that you see kind of at the pre-seed stage over the past year or so? Yeah, it's been interesting. I think I think the pandemic and I think some of like the racial injustices like in recent history have really impacted the venture space. I think, you know, in 2020 and 2021, we saw a lot of investors like rushing to back diverse founders, which was great, but I think it really <laughs> impacted kind of the, the price of getting involved. So we saw valuations go up a lot. And I think, you know, I actually thank God that I wasn't investing at that point in time, because I feel like there was a lot of overpaying for uh, deals that maybe weren't necessarily that and that price wasn't necessarily backed up by like actual business traction. And so now I think we see some of that cooling off and I think we're seeing valuations come back down a bit to kind of mirror really like where they're at from a stage perspective. And so I I think it actually like, you know, I'm glad that things have kind of reverted back to where they were from like a pricing level perspective. And now we're able to get into deals within our kind of $10 million limit on valuation. 
Yeah, no, I mean, that makes a ton of sense. And I think, you know, turning towards Chicago, where you have sort of decided to spend a good portion of your your career. I'd love to you know learn a bit more about how Chicago has played into your thesis, what it's been like starting the fund here, maybe your overall views of the the VC and startup ecosystem here. Yeah, I think I, the way that I described this on a previous panel was, you know, I think we're in kind of spring for Chicago as a VC market. I think you know spring has this idea of like sprouting new leaves and like things turning from like gray to green and like brown. And so I think that for Chicago, we're seeing a lot of great momentum right now. Momentum that I don't, I haven't seen since I've been here in Chicago. I think we've always kind of had these like staple funds and these staple VC participants. And now we're starting to see some new entrants, which I think is really, really needed in order to kind of change how founders perceive VC here in Chicago. And I, I talk to founders all the time. You know, I'm talking to a lot of diverse founders and they're, I, I hate it when they say, I can't raise money in Chicago, so I'm going to go to the coast. I'm going to leave Chicago and go to the coast. And so I think that, you know, with funds popping up like Long Jump Fund, like Chingono, who's now on Fund 2, like M25, who's now on Fund 3, like myself, I'm on Fund 1, there's Fifth Star, they're, you know, really making a huge impact here in Chicago for Black founders. There's TechRise, I love TechRise. I literally was talking to Desiree the other day, and I was like, TechRise fundamentally changed early stage investing and like early stage entrepreneurship in Chicago. And I think like seeing organizations like P33 do things like that is beautiful. And I think it's just kind of changing how we're able to support founders here in Chicago. And so, you know, I'm originally from the Midwest. I love Chicago. It's my favorite city in the U.S. <laughs> and I'm glad that I can be here in Chicago and raise a fund here because, you know, I think there aren't enough and I hope that there's more in the future. And I don't see them as competitors. I see them as continuing the conversation around VC and trying to figure out how to tap into so much of this wealth that we have here in Chicago that doesn't go to VC and, you know, goes elsewhere. And so let's try to keep that capital here. Yeah. And not to not to give a shout out to the show, but uh, a number of those investors, uh, you mentioned M25, Chingona, we've had on the show. And I highly recommend listeners after this episode, you know, seek out those episodes and learn more about those funds. Because I agree, I think they're doing absolutely essential and great work. And uh, I've loved getting to know everybody from those funds and around the ecosystem for sure for the past two years. From an industry perspective, um, I would love to hear your thoughts on where you see um, maybe some of the industries you all focus on at Capitalize, where you see those going in the next 10 years, enterprise tech, food and bev, how those play into the Chicago ecosystem. Yeah, I think for Chicago, I think that there is a huge opportunity specifically on the CPG side. And I know that's a small portion of our investment thesis, but it's one that I'm really excited about. I love when I get to do those deals. I, I probably get more excited about the CPG deals than I do about the tech deals, but don't tell anybody I said that. I think Chicago is prime for CPG and particularly food and beverage, but I think even broader than that, like all CPG. And I think that's because like, you know, the Midwest in the U.S. Midwest market has some of the largest, has has probably six of the largest retailers as well as six of the largest CPG companies based here. And so 
I think that speaks to the fact that there is opportunity, there's like space for supply chains to happen, but then there's also like buyers and retailers to sell those goods. And then there's also potential acquirers here. And so I think that food and beverage and CPG more broadly here in Chicago and in the broader Midwest is a huge kind of area and opportunity for capitalized to continue to invest. And, you know, this is part of the show. We really try and dig into people's Chicago preferences and, and, and thoughts. So any resources or, or organizations or, or, or events, et cetera, that, that you want to call out that you think are doing great things for the ecosystem, raising awareness and, uh, you know, that you attended or you frequently read or anything on those lines? Yeah. So I have to shout out two organizations. The first, and I'm, I'm on the board or advisory board of both of them. But the first is Black BC. So Black BC, Mike, Assem, and I run the Midwest chapter here in Chicago. And we do a lot of great stuff. A lot of it is kind of for our our membership, so Black investors. But we also do a couple of like broader um, ecosystem events where we have founders attend, we have service providers attend. So I would say Black BC is doing some great stuff and we have a lot of stuff planned for 2022. And then also Chicago Blend. I'm on the advisory board of Chicago Blend and uh, Chicago Blend is really doing a lot to kind of capture diversity within early stage tech and, you know, even late stage tech and really trying to figure out ways to scale technology businesses here in Chicago and make Chicago, you know, a great destination for for companies to to grow. And so I would say definitely those two. And then upcoming events, there's a Black Founders Summit in Cincinnati this summer. There's also Anhelis is hosting an event. It's called Anhelis 100. And that event is coming up. I believe it's a virtual pitch night. And then there's also Generator who hosts a ton of great events in the Midwest for founders to meet investors. And there's also the Midwest Tech Connect that is put on by Sandolphin Capital, which I think is an amazing event. And I always meet amazing founders when I go. So I would definitely say, you know, attend those events as well. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take some, some effort on our end, but we're going to link all those in the show notes. I think that is a very comprehensive list. I think there's so many valuable you know, tidbits in there. And so we'll absolutely link those for listeners who want to check them out. I think one of the you know, questions I wanted to get in in our remaining time that I'm thinking about is you've clearly displayed in your career, and you've talked about this too, kind of an unrelenting uh, desire for, for hustling and a comfort with risk that seems like it was prevalent from your very first career decision. So I'm just curious about where that really came from. Is it something you just grew up with? Is it something you always had? Or do you remember any kind of real moments that that led to kind of those traits really developing in you as you kind of grew up? Yes, I was. So I was living in Minneapolis and actually went to the same school from kindergarten to graduation through 12th grade. And I think like it kind of just stems from, you know, being from a small place and wanting to like experience other things. And so like when I went to college, I wanted to get as far away from like that community that I grew up in. I went to the same school. I saw the same people. I just wanted to like branch out. And as I did that, I was, you know, positively rewarded like every step of the way. So I just kept doing it. And I think that comes with, you know, a lot of privilege that I've had in my own life. 
that I have to, you know, acknowledge and like the ability to just do things like that and feel like, you know, I was going to be okay. But at the same time, I also had a really close friend from second grade and her mom, she ended up, you know, quitting her job and deciding to start a natural home care product line. And she she was married, but she had two kids and her oldest daughter was my best friend from second grade. And so she started this company, walked away from her career and grew the company to become what is now called Mrs. Myers Cleaning. So I'm not sure if you guys have heard of these soap products, but um, it's a whole line of like home care products. And basically, I watched her grow that company from zero to acquisition by the time I was in college. And so. Like, I think, you know, we, my friends and I, she would give us summer jobs over the summer and we'd just like pack boxes. And so we were very close to this process the entire time. But I think like being exposed to a success like that so early in life and like seeing her build it, being a part of it was just really, really, really cool and interesting. And I decided, I think at that point, this is a career path that is possible. And so why not shoot for the stars? I think it's it's such a great point. I think it speaks to kind of the importance and the lasting effect of role models. And I think, you know, the work that, that you, you're all doing, the work that uh, a lot of the organizations you mentioned around Chicago, the work they're doing, you know, providing capital to previously, you know, groups that may not have had access and just creating more successful founders, more successful outcomes. And end of the day, you know, more role models in the community. I think it's a, it's it's an awesome initiative. And it's, it's so interesting to hear that, you know, it still has a lasting impact on you to this day. So Tessa, on that, I want to thank you so much for hopping on the show. This has been an absolute blast. And, you know, if people want to follow you and follow your story and, you know, learn more about to capitalize or just, uh, you know, follow you on social, where can they go? Yeah, we are online at capitalizevc.com. And then I'm also on Twitter at Tessa Flippin or at CapitalizeVC. Awesome. Tessa, thanks so much for hopping on Chicago Capital. Can't wait to have you back in the future. Thanks so much for having me.